Here we are, getting into a new year, and great that we can all meet this morning, wherever you are. And isn't it good that 2021 is behind us now? No doubt, like us, you are hoping and praying that 2022 is going to be a way better year. But our God is always working for good, whatever is going on, making life meaningful. And because he lives, we can face the days ahead with confidence. Bill and Gloria Gaither, now both in their 70s, were prolific and popular gospel music writers. Bill usually writes the music and Gloria writes most of the lyrics for their songs. Now, one of their really popular songs is called Because He Lives. And as per usual with most songs, there's a story behind the song. Back in the late 1960s, when Gloria was pregnant with their third child, the Gaithers were going through a really hard time. Bill was recovering from a really bad bout, bout of glandular fever, and Gloria was going through a really bad time of torment and anxiety because of some awful false accusations that were being levelled at her. On top of all that, the Gaithers were really worried about the state of the nation. Drug abuse and racial tension were rife across America and schools were being infiltrated with the idea that God is dead. They thought the future looked so bleak and then Gloria was agonising over the thought that this was a terrible time to bring a child into the world. On New Year's Eve, she was sitting in their lounge, feeling just tormented with fear and that mental anguish. And suddenly God turned up. Her torment disappeared and she was surrounded with this gentle, calming peace that only God can bring. It was like her heavenly father had come to her rescue. She said he was like a very caring mother bending over a baby. And being pregnant, she was thinking about babies all the time. Her panic gave way to a calm assurance that she could leave the future in God's hands and everything would be fine. That encounter changed everything for Gloria and it inspired her to write this song. So just listen to these words for a couple of minutes. God sent His Son And they called Him Jesus He came to Thank you. 
Aren't those the most beautiful and reassuring words? So here we are. Last year is behind us now and we're going on into a new year. And as those encouraging words tell us, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. All around us, I see people who are dealing with appalling problems. I know people facing unrelenting pain day after day or living with the pain and grief that follows the loss of a loved one. People who are just existing with the most terribly poor quality of life or poverty, family issues, depression, anxiety, the list goes on and on. And even when we're living more normal kind of lives, there are plenty of times when we ask, is life really worth living? But as we've just heard, life is worth the living because he lives. Our Saviour makes a world of difference today, tomorrow, next year and right through to eternity. I had a bit of a laugh at a cartoon in the Herald before Christmas. It pictured a kiwi, the bird kind of a kiwi, standing in front of Santa Claus and it was like it was giving a list of what it wanted for Christmas. And Santa was waving a present and it was labelled normality. And he was saying, hmm, I have to think about this. I got you one last year and you managed to break it. Normality, what's that? As someone said, normal is an illusion. What's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Or maybe it really is true that normal is just a setting on the washing machine. Who knows? Anyway, hasn't our normality been replaced with a new normal? And that changes week by week. Normal, what on earth is that? We're over it, right? I'm over it. And I have it easy compared to a lot of people. I'm not alone. I'm not isolated. I'm not dealing with the loss of a loved one. I'm not having financial issues. How often does this age-old question cross our minds? Is life really worth living? Well, actually, nothing much has changed. About 3,000 years ago, King Solomon was asking the same question and he spent a great part of his life searching for the answer. And you know, he came to the same conclusion, more or less. Life is worth the living because he lives. Ecclesiastes is a pessimistic or maybe a realistic book about the futility of life without God. It seeks to answer this question, is life worth living? It basically looks at the record of what Solomon's searching or mankind's searching has discovered about the meaning and purpose of life. And so some of the ideas in this book are not necessarily God's ideas. Rather, Ecclesiastes is God's record of man's thoughts and arguments, which explains why some of the verses 
there do seem a bit out of step with the rest of the Bible. And then Solomon encourages us to live godly lives with his conclusion, which is basically that life is worth living if we devote ourselves to God and put him first and obey his word. Solomon starts in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2 with these words, Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other versions say vanity of vanity, vanities, futility of futilities. The Hebrew word that's translated meaningless, futility and vanity means all that and more. Add useless, worthless, emptiness, a mere breath, nothingness, foolishness, and you get the drift of what of Solomon's dismal perspective of life under the sun. Those words under the sun come up 29 times in Ecclesiastes. And when Solomon talks about under the sun, he's talking about life on our planet, under the sun. Solomon's gloomy outlook on life is not the perspective of a hopeless outcast, not the perspective of a beggar forced to live on the street, or someone suffering from a hideously painful or disfiguring disease. None of the above. No way. Solomon was the smartest person who ever lived. The man who had everything. And as a king back in his day, he had almost unlimited power and unbelievable wealth. And all Solomon's wealth and power meant that he could actually do whatever he wanted. So he could follow up and test out mankind's well-worn theories about finding meaning. He tried wisdom, pleasure, work, great projects, power and riches, among other things. And yes, they all have their place in life, but in the end, they don't fill the hole in our soul. As Solomon brings out in Ecclesiastes, life is insatiable and nothing is really new. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 to 10, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Solomon is basically saying that life can be a monotonous drag. Same old, same old. Well, we know about that. But we always kid ourselves by thinking, well, if I had more money, different circumstances, a better job, better wife, better husband, better kids, whatever, then life would be worth living. No. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. In other words, whatever we think would do the trick, it's never enough. Take money, for example, because we'd all like more money. Charles Spurgeon said, if you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. 
Now everyone knows the old saying, money can't buy happiness. But do we really believe it? Now it's clear that being super rich does not make people happy. But does money make life more meaning to, meaningful? Well actually, to an extent it does. Research shows that we do need money for a meaningful and a happy life. We need enough to meet our needs. If people struggle to put a roof over their heads, or food on the table, or can't afford to go to the doctor, or get the car or the washing machine fixed, or whatever, then yes, more money certainly does make them happier. But beyond having enough money, the correlation between income and happiness flattens out. It seems that once we get past the point of having enough money, then having a lot of extra money does not make us any happier. And that makes sense because God wants us to have an abundance. Biblically, what that means is having enough to meet all our needs and some extra to help others who are in need. And right now that's so many people, so we really have to be on the lookout to help others in need. The truth that money can't buy happiness is graphically illustrated in what is called the lottery curse. You know, buying lottery tickets is a gambling game that preys on that old get-rich-quick dream, which is not biblical. But the harsh reality is a dream often turns into a nightmare. This sounds crazy, but statistically, big lottery winners are likely to go bankrupt within five years. Now, one example, one lottery winner who ended up dying poor and alone after a number of failed marriages said this, Everyone dreams of winning money, but nobody realises the nightmares that come out of the woodwork. The nightmares include losing all the money, marriages falling apart, serious mental health issues, loneliness, isolation, depression, anxiety, addictions, and if the worst comes to the worst, suicide or murder. That's how bad it gets. So how much money would make a significant difference in your life? A bigger paycheck? A bigger house? A better car? We're always hungry for more. But materialism is like salt water. It won't quench our thirst, it just makes it worse. Solomon blows the money myth right out of the water with this powerful missile. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. That says it all. Money never fulfills and wealth never satisfies. We need to have enough and after that the more we get the more we want. It's just salt water. Having a whole lot of money is not going to fill the hole in our soul, but a relationship with our wonderful Saviour absolutely will do it. In 1 John 7, verse 37 to 38, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. No salt water there. Jesus is the real deal. Moving on, because he lives, we have amazing hope, whatever we're going through. In times of despair, we can know God as the God of hope. Romans 15 verse 13, May the God of hope pour hope into you through the Holy Spirit. Pour it in. Hebrews 6.19, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hope is an anchor for our soul. Just as an anchor holds a boat steady in a stormy sea, hope holds us steady in all the ups and downs and storms of life. In situations that would blow us off course, hope in God's promises is a solid anchor that holds us firm. Hope motivates us and gives us strength to endure hardship. It's like a candle in the night that shows us there's a way out of the darkness. We can put our hope in God's character, his love, his faithfulness, and we can hope in the promises in his word. Romans 15 and verse 4 tells us that we find hope as we engage with God's word every day. For everything that was written in in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope because he lives we have hope in life and we have hope in death and death is another one of Solomon's themes in Ecclesiastes as he says we are all doomed to die now there's this old saying apparently from Benjamin Franklin way back in the 1700s. He said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, we all know that there are plenty of people who get out of paying taxes. But it really is true that no one escapes death. Ecclesiastes 9 verses 2 to 3 all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean. It is with, as it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Apparently Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, that's one appointment that we can't wriggle out of, isn't it? We're all going to be there whether we like it or not. But because he lives, for us as Christians, death is the beginning of a wonderful new existence with God. Death is simply the door that we get through to get into that heavenly realm. Now, how we might die is not worth thinking about, but the most important thing in the world is where will we spend eternity? Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 3. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. 
Throughout the Bible, trees speak of humanity. So the fallen tree is the person who has died. Well, we know that a tree doesn't just fall to the north or the south. Trees can fall in any direction. And likewise, when a person dies, their body can fall in any direction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about our body being our earthly tent. And we all know a tent is a temporary dwelling. A tree, a human body, our earthly tent, these things can fall all over the place. But when it comes to the eternal part of us, there's only two possibilities, not literally north or south, but they certainly are poles apart. And we're talking heaven and hell. And we have to make sure that we fall in the right direction. Now, if we think about trees falling down, random, rotting, vandalized, or in a storm, whatever, they can fall all over the place and they can do a lot of damage. But then there are other trees that have a very carefully planned flight path. Now, back in the days when the cowrie timber industry was the economic backbone of Auckland and Northland a long time ago, there were bushmen who were so skilled at felling those giant trees, they could plan precisely where they would land. The axeman would decide which direction he wanted the tree to fall in, and then he chopped a wedge-shaped cut called a scarf near the bottom of the trunk on that side. The exact shape of that scarf or wedge determined where that tree would land. I've seen an old photo of some bushmen standing around a giant cowrie that was just beginning to fall. Four men were standing really close to that massive tree. If anything went wrong, they would have been history. But they looked so relaxed. You could see that they were totally confident the tree was going to land exactly where they planned. Because he lives... Salvation from sin and the free gift of eternal life is available to all of us. So we must be like skilled bushmen and prepare our tree to land in the right place. Our time under the sun is our one and only chance to get that one sorted. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 4, Solomon says, A wise person thinks about death but a fool thinks only about having a good time. Too many people don't want to think about death, and yes, we get that. But they waste their time under the sun just living as though they have an endless supply of days. Solomon calls this foolishness. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. God has given mankind a sense that there's more to life than just this life. We have that. There's that sense of eternity, another life after this one. But we have to get the right facts so that we can accurately interpret what that means. 
Now, if we put the teaching of Romans 4, 24 to 25 and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4 together, we don't have time now. You'd have to take my word for it. We get the four basic facts of the gospel, which are Jesus was given by God the Father to be punished by death for our sins. Secondly, Jesus was buried, which means that he really did die. Thirdly, God raised him from the dead on the third day. Fourthly, we receive his righteousness by believing in these facts. In other words, we're saved by faith. Faith in Jesus' death on the cross. And if you have never received Jesus as your saviour, you'll have an opportunity to do so shortly after I've finished. There's an old story about a woman who was dying of cancer. When her oncologist thought she had about three months left, he told her that she better make any final preparation she needed to do. So she talked to her pa pastor about her funeral service. She had some requests, songs, scriptures, and a few other things. She wanted her favorite Bible with her in her coffin, and she wanted to be buried with a fork in her right hand. What on earth? The pastor was surprised. She said, in all my years of going to church functions, whenever it was a meal, I loved it if the person washing the dishes would say, you can keep your fork. She said that meant the best part was coming, something good like cake or pie, something substantial. Then she got to the point. She said, I want people to see me in the coffin with the fork in my hand. And then they're going to say, what's with the fork? And she said to the pastor, then you can tell them the meaning of the fork is that something better is coming. Because he lives, we can look forward to something better, way better. In other words, spending eternity in heaven with Jesus, that's definitely the best ever. Ecclesiastes is relevant to our day and age because life works best when we live according to God's plan. And yes, God has a plan. Jeremiah 29 verse 11, just one verse, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you hope and a future. God's plan for us includes living in a close relationship with him, walking in obedience to him, which is how we show our love for him and finding and fulfilling his purpose for our lives. King Solomon lived a life of wealth and power and privilege, but in his search for meaning, he ultimately concluded in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 that the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. The very best life for us is how we were created to live. In other words, according to the manual, the Bible. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And now I just want you to listen to this beautiful song and let the words minister to you. God bless you. 
God sent His Son. Life's final.